0: Friends, I was talking to Pastor Daniel Walter a couple of days ago. And this is an 81-year-old soldier for Christ who used to fly airplanes into the Amazon as a missionary. And he served in Cambodia as well, probably other places he didn't even tell me about. And now he's pastoring a little church in Cedar City, Utah. And when you speak with him, you can hear wisdom in every word, you know. And I was starting to feel a little young and unproven, so I asked him to pray for us both. Lord, he says, help us to fill the void and help us to come together. Yes, Pastor Walter. Yes, friends, isn't it wonderful to be able to come together and worship the Lord? Isn't it wonderful that God will fill the void and that nothing, and I mean nothing can separate us from the love of God. Before we get into the message for today, let's read our theme verse, shall we? And this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter four, and I'm going to read verses eight and nine, and then verse 18. Here's what the Bible says. It says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. And friends, what I like to do lately is to group the we's and the not's together. And it sounds a little bit like this. We are troubled on every side. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are cast down, but not distressed, not in despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. And then verse 18 says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We are not defeated, friends. We are not forsaken, friends. And come what may we keep our eyes upon that which is eternal. We continue to look upon Jesus, united, standing together, looking upon Jesus. Our message begins in the multi-purpose room of the Abundance Life Seventh-day Adventist Church right here in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was a school day, and the academy kids were somewhere in the school doing their work. The teachers were doing their work, but I was in the multipurpose room filming Pastor Carlos Camacho, whom you heard from earlier. He's our conference secretary and was helping me out with a little project we called Daniel and the Revelation. And I'd asked him, I said, sir, please pick one of your favorite Bible verses and read it on camera and then tell us what you love about it. In other words, go ahead, Pastor Camacho, preach a little bit. Now, there are a lot of passages the pastor could have chosen. So many good ones, you know, that it's hard to just pick one. But you can tell a lot about a person's journey by the scripture they hold dear. Now, it's not diagnostic, but it is indicative. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's one of Pastor Madden's favorites. Or we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And that's Pastor Thomas Clark's favorite. And here's mine. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. (laughs) Can you sense my journey? What's yours? The Lord is my shepherd or for God so loved the world or all things work together for the good I didn't know what Pastor Camacho would quote, but before I tell you, let me set the scene a little bit. (laughs) Because as we were laughing and prepping and even singing, I had no idea that this would be one of the worst days of my life. I didn't know that in just a few hours, I would discover that my little girl, my darling daughter, was possibly very sick and might not see her teenage years. That's right. I didn't know that my wife and I would hold each other that night, tears flowing from our eyes, me holding her up, her holding me up. I didn't know that we would be clinging to every word of the text that Camacho was about to read. I didn't know that scripture I was going to record would be a lifeline keeping me from drowning in fear and sorrow. How could I know? In fact, (laughs) as I think back on it, I laugh at myself, all happy and ignorant, blissful. You ever do that? You ever think back to the time before you knew a storm was coming? Before you got that letter in the mail before 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 you received that phone call from your hometown at four o'clock in the morning before the news report came in from the CDC about a strange new virus how could you have known what was coming hmm Pastor Camacho walked onto the set and the preacher lifted his Bible and he turned to the book of Luke, I can still hear the pleasant crinkle, crinkle of Bible pages. And this is what he read. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring Now, remember, friends, that in Revelation chapter 17, it says that prophetically, the water which thou sawest, John, are nations and kindreds and tongues and people, so we can make a prophetic substitution here. The sea and waves roaring are the nations and peoples roaring. Verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Shaken to the core. And then verse 28 wafts up from the pages like a delicious aroma. It reads, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads. The English Standard Version says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. The New Revised Standard Version says, stand up, raise your heads. Why? Redemption draweth nigh. In our trials, in our sorrow, in our perplexity, in our nervousness. Redemption's coming. But we must maintain an upward-gazing perspective. So today's message, stand and look up. Stand and look up. Sing this little song with me. Lord, prepare me to be a saint. Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior in heaven. Lord, I firstly ask that you would hide Ryan. Let us not hear from Ryan or see him, but would you yourself come and speak to us as we examine your words, which instruct us to stand and look up in the latter days. Thank you, dear Lord. Save us, we pray. In thy mighty name, amen and amen. Jesus had just done something unthinkable. He had rebuked the Pharisees before, you know. He had healed on the Sabbath before. He had dared to touch Samaritans, lepers, prostitutes. He'd even touched the dead, which is a no-no in Jewish culture, before raising them up, that is. (laughs) But on this day, Jesus takes it to a whole new level, does he not? He enters the temple in Jerusalem during its most busy time, and he sees the mockery that it has become. Jesus, who would pay the price for our sins, sees the unholy exchange of money, the setting of prices for sacrificial animals. The people that taken the temple practices, which were a holy representation of what Jesus himself would be, would do, our Savior, and they were profiting from it, making money off of it in an unholy way, personal gain. You know, it wouldn't be the last time people use the name of God to make money. And Jesus drives them out, turning the tables over. He expresses his righteous indignation. It is written, he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but they've made it a den of thieves. And the money exchangers, the marketeers, the profiteers, they all flee from his presence, from his countenance. I'm reminded of how many will be when Jesus returns with his full glory and might. How many will flee? How many will hide? But why here? Why did the riffraff flee on this day in the temple? You know, one writer says that that Jesus almost glowed his divinity peaked, as it were, from behind the curtain of his humanity. And the people realized that they were in a greater presence than it would have seemed at first. Or how about this? How about this? Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Jesus is the living bread, John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus shows mercy, John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is the Lamb of God, John chapter 1, verse 29. Slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. So every aspect of the temple, from the high priest to the bread to the mercy seat, to the Lamb, to the sacrifice, its very purpose indicated... Jesus and maybe just maybe for a second for a moment the money exchangers sitting in the temple that day saw Jesus the real sanctuary and even if subconsciously they knew they must move aside in the face of his authority again because it wasn't the first time and according to prophecy It wouldn't be the last time Jesus would clean his temple. But after such holy audacity, the disciples knew, they they, they just knew that Jesus would soon proclaim himself earthly king. He had triumphantly entered Jerusalem and had already begun to set the crooked places straight, make the rough places plain. And looking ahead, they only saw bright hope Blue skies, not knowing that the darkness of the crucifixion lay just ahead, and that soon, like we discussed earlier, they would be huddled in the upper room, remembering the time before the tragedy. Now, I do not mean to imply in any way that having hope in Jesus is foolish, that being happy in Jesus is wrong, or that being confident in him only brings sorrow, not at all, never, never. It brings joy. But see, the disciples' plans were not God's plans. Jesus was on a greater mission than that of only saving the Jews. Jesus had humanity to redeem. But for now, all was hopeful. The very air was buzzing with potential and they walked together to the hill, to the Mount of Olives, talking of promise and dreaming of freedom. And Jesus is with them. Jesus is with them. How awesome is that? And when they crest the summit, the temple lay before them in her milky splendor, white. Now. The conversation that Jesus is about to have is what is known as the Olivet Discourse, among others. And it can be found in the book of Mark, chapter 13, Luke, chapter 21, of course. And in fine detail in Matthew, chapter 24, which is where Jesus says that this gospel shall be preached into all the world as a witness unto all nations. But but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. The disciples are looking at the splendor of the temple, which in their minds is an homage to their God, Jehovah. Yes, but also you got to admit, you got to admit the temple was also to them a testimony of the awesomeness of the work of human hands. Yes, it served as a testament to the greatness of what men and women could achieve. Are we not the same? Look at our fine creations and our fine cities and spires. Look at our technology and governments. Look at our spacecraft, our our moon craft. Look at the works of our hands and how great it is, isn't it? (laughs) How awesome we little people are. It'll last forever, won't it? Nothing can destroy it, can it? You know, I remember just a few weeks ago before the pandemic got real, hearing people say, we aren't some, some third world country here in America. We can't be affected by the virus here in America like others are because we have the best. Our greatness will protect us. Lord, help us. Because we need to lean not upon ourselves, but on Jesus And the disciples are looking at the temple and the greatness of the temple. It overwhelmed them and they didn't mean it. They weren't trying to be that way, but their plans were not God's plans. Luke chapter 21, verse five says, somebody spoke up. They had to, they said, isn't this temple something? Jesus rabbi, isn't it great? And Jesus, knowing their plans, Jesus, knowing how much it would hurt, and he himself hurting, makes a devastating declaration. He completely alters their worldview. The days will come, he says, in which there shall not be left one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down what and they were thinking of triumph and jesus jesus portends defeat their hopes were here and now their hopes are here no 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 surely not jesus say it isn't so for generations the temple had stood broken down and then rebuilt. For generations, they had prayed for earthly might and earthly restoration. How could such utter tribulation and destruction happen? How could their reality change so much? Later, Andrew and Peter, James and John, two sets of brothers, a fraternal committee, they draw nigh to the master and they ask, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign, Jesus, of thy coming and the end of the world? And with that question, history expands before the Savior like a great accordion. He looks beyond the page and even beyond the chapter toward the end of the volume itself. It is here that you and I cease to read this story about the disciples. And now we join the disciples at the feet of Jesus. For when he speaks, he speaks to us all. Can you see him? In your mind, can you look into the Savior's eyes right then? As he gazes in prophecy down through the ages, he says, "Ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Verse 10, then said he unto them, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences friends Pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Jesus looks into the near future and he sees his mock trial, his murder. And then with only the father's word as guarantee, he looks beyond the cross into the more distant future to the persecution of his disciples and of his redeemed He sees the destruction of that earthly temple under the dubious command of Titus, the Roman general. He sees the rise of the papacy, the demise of religious freedom. He sees spiritualism resurge. He sees crusades and Ottoman warriors, the bubonic plague and Napoleon. He sees world wars, not one, but two or more. He sees mankind again gain the ability to destroy himself. He sees his remnant rallying, prophecy understood. He sees it. He sees it. He sees a beleaguered world reeling in the wind of a novel virus, COVID-19. Huddled in homes and hospitals, determined to keep his Sabbath come what may. He sees you, friend. He sees me there on the Mount of Olives before a doomed temple. Jesus sees it all. And he speaks. He speaks not to scare us, but to inform us, not to cause us to feel powerless, but to assure us that he has all power. Nevertheless, as he speaks, the disciples sitting with us at his feet are frightened like we're frightened, unsure like we are unsure, needing encouragement like we need encouragement. And Jesus looks upon them, he looks upon us, and then we get the words and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Verse 27. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, when you see the signs, friends, when the wind begins to blow, when the earth begins to shake, when the pestilence begins to fall, then look up. Stand up, it says, and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus says to change your perspective on the matter. Because it's one thing to face the tribulation bowed down and defeated, bent over and beat down, hopeless and helpless. But it's something else altogether to face things standing on Jesus and looking on Jesus. This this is not just a matter of the glass being half empty versus the glass being half full. We're talking about having faith in Jesus, our champion, our victor, our redeemer. You know what? Let's use an example of how things look a little bit different when we have the proper perspective when you know that redemption is coming. So let's just put, put a pen, if you may, in Luke chapter 21 and go with me to the book that is also written by Luke, the book of Acts chapter 12. And we are going to begin at verse one. Talking about perspective here. Here's what it says it says, Now, about the time Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he, Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Have mercy. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. You see that? Oh, I know Pastor Neary is saying amen. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Verse 6. And when Herod would have brought Peter forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Verse 7, and behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And the angel smote Peter on the side, and raised Peter up, saying, arise quickly. And his chains fell from his hands. And the angel said unto him, gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did, and he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. Talk about dark and trying times. You can read in the book Acts of the Apostles that the people of Christ were being herded, hounded. Their homes were being taken. Their women were being assaulted. And James, not James, James, the son of thunder, James, part of that fraternal committee that we were talking about had been captured and killed by the sword. Thank you, Herod. Thanks a lot, Herod. You killed James. And by the way, Herod killed James to appease the Jews. He did it for the same reason that a previous Herod had killed John the Baptist because he would not stand for what was right. And now Peter, Simon, Rocky, has been cast into prison and is awaiting his fate. They grabbed Peter and they beat him and they shoved him into captivity. They served him some slop and left him there because it was Passover and the people were celebrating. And after Passover, they would proceed with Peter's sentencing. And I imagine that the irony was not lost on Peter as he sat in prison, possibly awaiting his death. Because you know, it had been during Passover that they arrested his savior and killed him. It had been during Passover weekend that Peter had skulked in the courtyard and with cowardice, he had denied his Lord, not once, but thrice. But where before he had shrunk away, now Peter is determined to stand for his Jesus, to keep his promise to die for him. The hour is late, and the rusty, bloody chains weigh heavily upon Peter. The weight of his predicament is literally upon him. But when all seems lost, a mighty angel is dispatched from the barracks of heaven, and we are told that while Peter sleeps, the angel strikes him to awaken him, and look at what the angel says. Look at what the angel says. The angel raised him up, stood him up, saying, Arise. Do you see the similarity? Peter is in a dark hour when the angel comes, and the angel says, Stand, Peter. Arise, Peter. Can you hear Jesus' words being echoed here? Stand, lift up your heads. Look up, Peter. Your redemption has come. Stand up. Look up. And then verse 7, and Peter's chains fell off from his hands. The chains fell off. Now, I'd like to focus on that aspect As we draw to a close here, arise Peter and the chains fall off. The same chains that had seemingly weighed him down, the same chains they had used to bind him are now an indication of how great God is. Listen to me, listen to me, because I'm about to discuss having the proper perspective of a Christian that's standing on Jesus and looking to Jesus. When the chains were placed on Peter, they had this sound to them. Yes, the sound of a man in chains. Can you hear them as they lead Peter to the prison cell? The chains rattled and the rattling of the chains brought news of the Christian being attacked by Satan. When you heard Peter walking down the hall, <laughs> a downcast, bent over Christian might have heard these chains and said, Woe is Peter! How messed up Peter's situation is! I don't know how Peter's gonna make it. Where is Peter's God? But when the angel said, Look at this, when the angel said, Arise, stand up. The chains fell off, according to verse 7. Now, when the chains fell off, guess what sound they made? The same sound. What was the difference? The difference was perspective. The rattling of the chains may have meant defeat to the defeated. They may have meant discouragement to the discouraged. But to the man, Peter, who had learned to stand up and look up, the rattle, rattle of the chains was the sound of coming victory. He knew that Jesus could save him. He knew that Christ could free him. And even if he'd met his death, redemption was coming. So let's bring this home. The news of trouble The countless deaths, the dismal outlook, the reports of viral spread are the rattle, rattle of chains. But to us, those are not the sounds of defeat. Those ain't the last gasp of God's people. That's the sound of the coming Lord. That's the sound of redemption. So Jesus says, when these things shall come to pass, when you hear this stuff, stand and look up. Stand, look up, two commands right next to each other. When he says to look up in the KJV, the Greek word is, and I'm gonna try to say this right, anakipsate, which means to raise oneself up or to, and I quote, unbend or to stand tall. Along this Christian journey, we cannot look up but fail to stand up. Because what good does it do to know that Jesus is coming, but not be willing to stand for Jesus, not be willing to do that which is right, to preach the truth? In these last days, God is calling upon his people to stand, to stand family for him, but also to stand on him. If Jesus is not our foundation, we will wither and fall. The song says, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. Stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Jesus says to look up or stand up. And then he says, lift up your head. (laughs) I think about Psalms chapter three and verse three. Dr. Linda Ammon, Sister Zeta, I'm talking to you, Yamale. When we prayed in the hospital, remember that? We quoted that Psalms, didn't we? Psalms 3.3 says, God is the lifter up of mine head. Because you cannot stand but not lift up your head. You got to keep looking to Jesus. Psalms 121 says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. David knew that in the midst of trouble, he not only had to stand up, but also look up. We can stand all day long determined to make it, determined to be strong. But the moment we take our eyes off Jesus, we fall. Ask Peter, walking on the water that time, standing on the waves in faith, the others behind him, Jesus before him. And the Bible says that the waves got before him and the social dynamic got deep behind him and Peter took his eyes off Jesus and though Peter had been standing he began sinking and then Peter remembered where his help came from he remembered Psalms 121 and he looked to the hills from whence his help came and he said Lord save me and Jesus was there you can't just stand up you also have to look up and when these things begin to come to pass then look up stand up and lift up look up your heads why redemption (laughs) redemption jesus is coming again jesus is coming friends so be encouraged Be ready, stand and look up. You know, you never end a sermon without taking time to recommit. And right where you are, right where I am, we can do this. Let's determine to stand, but let's also determine to keep our eyes on jesus father in heaven save us we pray lift our heads lord help us to stand and save us in the mighty name of jesus christ we pray